You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Loyalty's my favorite characteristic of God, but finding it in it is hard. It's like trying to find God. You're the only one in your camp with cheese. You pay for everything they eat. Man, that insecurity is deep. Now I ain't said no names. These are just theories if you hear me, baby. It's home. You must admit it's kind of eerie, baby. Like them Kim Trails in the sky. Grand Rising, everybody. Welcome to the day with Trey. I'm your host, Trey Holiday, And of course, on this heat wave of a week. We've got a hot, fiery episode coming your way today. I get to actually sit down with Jordan Summers. He is one of our photographers here. And Jordan Summers has a phenomenal story to share with us, not only about his photography, but the history of what got him into photography and how he's carrying on a legacy with his family. So I can't wait to dive in with him today. But of course, it is the top of the show. So it's a great time for you to tag and share this stream right here. Please tag and share the stream with folks you feel could benefit from a daily dose of dopeness right here on The Day with Trey. Also, if you can't watch our show, no problem. You can listen to our show anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Just search Converge Media Network and The Day with Trey and you'll find us right there. Google, Spotify, iTunes, all of the 200 plus platforms. You name it, you'll find us. Um, of course, I want to keep this message alive too because Elixir of Love, the tickets are out right now. It is opera's most winning comedy. And it sounds like it's a phenomenal story. I can't wait to see it myself. But we really appreciate the fact that we are being intentional to bring these opportunities of art and culture to our community. Come and check out a phenomenal show. I have not been disappointed yet. And I was not an opera goer before I started going with our partnership over there uh, with our friends at Seattle Opera. Really appreciate them for always making sure we're informed so we can inform you guys of these awesome opportunities. But of course, now I get to actually spend the entire show talking to Jordan Summers. He is coming up next here and he's going to be sharing with us some really specific history that got him to where he is today. What's up, Jordan? How are you? What's up, Trey? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm I'm fantastic. And, Excellent. you know, we were just talking a little bit before the show of how I've just really experienced your amazing photography, not realizing you had this really deep story. Tell us about it from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, where to begin? I can go, I can go back as far as I want, but I'll, I'll, I'll say that, um, right now I'm holding a, a photo exhibition. Um, so that's kind of where I've kind of gotten to today. Um, but reeling back from that, uh, this photo exhibition, um, uh, is kind of a byproduct of my brother's work and my work. And my brother was a photojournalist in Yemen, uh, during the Arab spring from 2011 to 2013. And uh, my work from the 2020 protests uh, amid uh, George Floyd's murder, uh, recorded murder. And uh, so what makes this exhibition particularly um, near and dear to the heart is, you know, I've been showing my brother's work for years now. Um, and that's uh, due to the fact that he was killed in Yemen um, in uh, 2014. Mm. Um, so this exhibition is the first time I'm, I'm actually showing my work. And I thought it was kind of a wonderful uh, uh, reason to maybe combine both worlds, not just to put my work alongside my brothers for any reason in particular, but really to combine kind of two cultural like vantage points, like two different paradigms 
um, but also showing kind of like the, the, the very similar struggle in terms of uh, racial oppression, systematic oppression and economic oppression. So that's what the exhibition represents. Um, and I can kind of tell that I'm, I, you know, of course, I want to tell more of the story of my brother um, and where it all kind of came to be. Um, but where would you like me to start with this? Well, well, I think you have some really great photos here of some of the earlier days, right? Yeah, you and sure. your brother, your mother as well. So we can kind of start there because yeah. obviously it was already clear to me, you know, sometimes you have siblings and you're not that connected. It right. was not the case with you and your brother. It looked oh, like you guys sure. actually had a really close relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as close as can be, which just adds to the kind of the, the intensity um, of this whole situation and life um, as I know it. But uh, yeah, so it was just my mom, brother, and I growing up um, together. Uh, we, we were born in England, actually. And uh, my mother took my brother and I to America at about two and a half years. I was two and a half. My brother was seven. So she took us away from our fathers for, for certain reasons and to be close with our grandparents. So um, and I'll say that it was kind of like an on off switch was flipped when we came to the States. Uh, life seemed to kind of be an uphill battle um, ever since moving from England. Uh, because when you're when you're talking about a single mom raising two sons with kind of bohemian kind of uh, dispositions and whatnot, um, America sometimes isn't the most forgiving place. So welfare, food stamps, section eight, uh, coupon cutting, all that kind of stuff. That was part of the part of the vocabulary growing up. And then you reach a certain point in adolescence when you're like, oh, this isn't a ubiquitous commonplace thing. This is like a kind of a unique situation. And then you start kind of processing that and um, dealing with the insecurities and all those kinds of things that come with just living in it kind of a, a what felt like kind of a, a, a decent, simple life, but also when you realize what's possible, you know, um, just what, what the American dream is supposed to represent. Um, but amid all that, you know, just being us three, you know, we kind of held each other up, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we, um, we would take advantage of the little, you know, the a little extra money coming our way or, or, um, little trips that came our way or something. And we'd just be silly, you know, cause I think silliness is a way to kind of, to offset, um, the doom and gloom of, of just kind of the intensity of the whole situation as a whole. Um, so we kind of had that, that, the three of us really had that pact growing up, you know, my brother, especially, um, and, uh, Luke kind of growing up, he was, um, he was one of those kind of nocturnal beings. He was one of those people who wouldn't go to bed until like four or five every night <laughs> and he'd be left to his own devices kind of, and this is where he'd be really tapping in. You know, this is where he would get to know sub like the ins and outs of subcultures. Like you, you could quiz him on any question about basketball, about boxing, about hip hop music, he knew everything, wow. you know, about foreign film, and he kind of brought that in to, uh, to the way he experienced life. Well, that's know. so beautiful, too. And I mean, when you're talking about, um, you know, his experiences, clearly there was something in his path that also led him into photography and kind of the mm. journalistic style of photography. And, and that also took him to Yemen, correct? That's right. Yeah. So tell us a bit about that transition in terms of his connection to, you know, kind of photojournalism and sharing stories in that way, utilizing his camera to be kind of that conduit of how he, you know, really saw the world. Oh, for sure. 
Yeah. And I'll just say before he went to Yemen, um, the last time I saw him was I was in Peace Corps in Nicaragua and I, I visited uh, my mom and brother for Christmas and he gifted me a camera, which was the last time I saw him before mm -hmm. he went off to Yemen two months later. And he kind of got the ball rolling for me on that front. You know, um, he, he knew I liked photography and, uh, but he was never abrasive with it. He knew that everyone was operated on their own time, but he said, Hey, play with this Jordan, see where it goes, you know? So, yeah. So then I saw him off and then he went to Yemen. And of course, how could you not be excited for him? Because this was a place that was near and dear to his heart. And he was infatuated, uh, with the cultural history of Yemen and the Middle East in general, but Yemen specifically with its kind of like, it's rich kind of deep, uh, connections to Islam, to Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad, to, um, just, just like really like kind of, kind of an origin of so much kind mm -hmm. of, uh, of what the Middle East represents, you know, kind of, uh, you know, originating from that region. Um, so Luke went there just to be, he didn't go there with any agenda. He didn't mm -hmm. want to, uh, he didn't have any political um, purpose to serve. You know, he, he got there by virtue of being a teacher at an all girls school to teach English. And being a teacher probably wasn't his biggest strong suit because that required being very organized. Yeah. And uh, so I think being a teacher, he, he would bring his A game, but it was also an interesting position for him to be in because that just the, the educational sector meant a lot of kind of different um, kind of expectations yeah. and um, pressures and all that kind of stuff. So meanwhile, he gets caught up in the Arab Spring. And for anyone who doesn't know what the Arab Spring was, it was just a series of anti-government protests that kind of caught just just kind of spread all throughout the Middle East. And the, the Arab Spring in Yemen just so happened to start basically like two weeks into Luke arriving in Yemen. Mm. So um, naturally, Luke just kind of gravitated to the streets every day. And he was one of those people that he would kind of distance himself from the foreigners, from the expats. He just lived with the protesters in the camps in what they called Tent City. So he was just there. He was just living his life, um, you know, just engaging conversation all day, every day, smoking cigarettes with them, just kind of hanging out. Um, but being the gifted photographer and writer and everything that he was, um, he found himself working for a Yemen, uh, English speaking newspaper in Yemen. Um, and then before he knew it, he was freelancing for BBC, for Al Jazeera, for New York Times, for NPR. And the beautiful thing about this whole experience is you can, you can see whether how, however conscious or unconscious of it he was, he just wanted to show Yemen in a good light because all we saw over here was war, uh, terrorism, Al Qaeda, things like that. So Luke was, Luke made a point to just do all, you know, all the cultural kind of happenings, you know, like youth bowling tournaments. I mean, he went to the, uh, or like Somali, the Somali refugee crisis, which is hardly covered. Um, just a whole, like a plethora of beautiful happenings that, that represent what Yemen's all about, what we don't really see. So he was actually providing glimpses of that reality through his work. I, and I just got to say here too, Jordan, his, his mm. photography work was spot on phenomenal. Oof. I mean, there was something very crystal clear, even in the images you shared with me. I know we only have three of them here, but my goodness, like... I said his perspective and his eye, this is so key in photography. Anybody mm. can have an amazing camera, take a sharp image, mm. but there's really something special about his uh, approach and his portrayal, exactly what you're talking about of this rich cultural vibrancy mm. that was there. I could feel that through the mm. photographs you shared with me. For sure. Yeah, no, he was, he was in it. You know, he was, 
it, it, and this is where I can kind of relate to them of my experience, you know, in the following years. But when you're, when you're just in it, you're in it, there's nowhere else you'd rather be. You're just kind of connected to the source. And this is, this is, this is what kind of sparks you. This is what makes you feel alive when you see kind of community coming together for a fight. That's something that just kind of transcends, um, what we know to be true on the daily grind in the daily grind, you know? So, yeah. So his, his work was just, it, it was just the tip of the iceberg for him, you know, cause he was just getting started and that's, and that's, that's the beautiful thing, but it's also the tragic thing because there was no telling what lengths he was going to be able to go to just, just by virtue of being him, just by virtue of being able to show up in any particular situation and adjusting his kind of plane to really being able to kind of connect with people and make people feel heard and represented. And, and the common thing you'd hear, cause I've, I've met a lot of people who knew Luke in Yemen or people who've just talked about him in Yemen, but they just said, Luke was Yemeni. He wasn't American, <laughs> but that was kind of a testament that he would never, Luke wasn't a big fan of labels in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of his students one at one time asked, you know, he was born in England, but he grew up in America. So what does he associate with? And he said, neither like this planet is my country kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So it's that whole, just being able to completely immerse yourself into whatever environment you are. And Yemen just happened to be that, that place that he kind of ended up in the end um, with so many kind of precursors leading up to that, you know, I mean, living in Trenchtown in Jamaica, you know, um, fishing boats in Alaska, you know, living in Egypt, you know, and not really having a plan B just kind of living on rooftops and stuff. And so just integrating with the community in those ways and embracing discomfort, you know, and in, in, in that ability to embrace, to embrace the, the comfort within the discomfort, he was able to capture what I think is such a rare and beautiful kind of essence of life that, um, that happens all the time that we just, we just got to be perceptive to it. You know, I got to say, this is such a great setup. I mean, after this break, we're going to dive into uh, some of how that story evolved with your brother in Yemen. And uh, clearly there was uh, some things you really learned throughout that process. And I just, even through the photos, I could see how you and your mother we're still just like holding each other up in these moments. You guys, uh, this conversation is going to continue with me and Jordan Summers right after this short break. I'm telling you, you want to stay tuned and hear how this story evolves right after this. Stay tuned. You're watching The Day with Trey. Hey there, it's Trey Holiday, And of course, Besa and I had to take a trip back to Market Street Shoes to grab some items. They always know what to show us. And let me tell you, we both spent quality time to be sure we collected some amazing additions to our wardrobes. They have some of the most unique bags, shoes, and accessories. I mean, the whole shebang. It's always a good time when I get to shop with my girl, Beta. Make sure you go check out Market Street Shoes, y'all, and you too can walk out with some dope gear. Grand Rising and welcome back everybody to the day with Trey. Of course, you guys gotta check out my brother, The Truth of Proof tonight, happening right here on Converge Media. I actually really love his commercial. And, and personally, I love the cartoon floating up at the end. It is so proof. Anyways, welcome back. As I've been talking to Jordan Summers about, you know, his history and his brother being an amazing photographer, gifting him with his first camera, and then him kind of picking up the legacy. But we really ended there where it's like you were showcasing how 
you know, your brother, Luke, was embodied in the culture. He was, you know, like they said, he was Yemeni. I mean, they didn't know any difference because he wasn't toting around some American flag with him. He was really a part of the people and really um, understood the beauty of the culture there. Um, and so through his work as a photojournalist, he found himself in a lot of different spaces right while he was in Yemen. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was... Um... Yeah, I mean, he was he was all over the country, basically. And like I said, I mean, even just kind of on the border, um, one of the big crises was a Somali, Somalian refugee crisis. And this is another thing that's just not televised or just not recorded at all. But I mean, people are actually, I mean, conditions were so bad in Somalia uh, that they were emigrating to, to Yemen for a brighter future, not really understanding how much in turmoil kind of Yemen was already in and becoming. Um, so he would make a point to just kind of put himself out there and spend time with these people um, who, who Luke and I just kind of can kind of envision they would just be instant friends. They would mm -hmm. just hit it off and they would just have these shared connections. So the rate at which Luke had to go through this was, was speaking to his, to his heart. But I also knew that it like broke him down every single time as well, because you're just on to the next thing. And you have that, that luxury, if you will, to be able to kind of come back to a, to a base point kind of thing. Um, so I think Luke, when it came to the morality of photojournalism, being someone so like insightful and curious and sensitive, I think that kind of messed with him quite a bit because, uh, because life, life was so kind of tricky in that way, just to try to make sense of things and just to try to, um, um, truly experience and feel, you know, what, what you're feeling in a place like Yemen, you know, so kind of detached from what you grew up to know, um, so, yeah, so Luke was engaged in that to a large degree. Um, there was even a national dialogue conference, which, you know, uh, ambassadors from different countries came together and they kind of spoke to peace, like um, um, different tribes would come together uh, to kind of uh, try to settle disputes and try to kind of find uh, some sort of happy medium and understanding. So Luke was a translator for that. He was a photographer for that, of course, um, but he was just he was everywhere, you know, mm -hmm. so he was doing his thing. And again, he kept away from the limelight. He kept away from people who were trying to turn something out of, you know, it's trying to make Yemen seem something that it was not, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so in throughout that whole process, you know, mom and I were talking to him quite a bit, you know, we, he would even send us his photos, say, what do you think, Jordan? Like, Hey Jay, like, what do you think of this? And all that kind of stuff. And he would always be eagerly kind of sharing and that kind of stuff. And he was planning on coming home soon too. Like he was really kind of craving being with mom because, you know, he just, uh, we always want to give her as much support as we can. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was already buying his clothes, bought some clothes to send him back and everything. And, he was asking if I'd pick him up at the airport and all that kind of stuff. So even though his head, you know, even though he was still doing his thing in Yemen, still doing reports, still doing stories, still hanging with the protesters every single day, going to weddings, all these beautiful things, um, he was ready to come home. And um, and I'm not sure if it's best time to go into yeah. it you know, right now. But yeah, he was. Uh, so we got a call. Um, and this was September 2013 that Luke had gone missing. Um, and then we and then. Um, a couple of days later, uh, we found out that he was abducted by an armed tribesman. And this was just on a busy street uh, that he went shopping all the time. You know, he was he came out of the grocery store. People just brought him into a truck, drove off. And um, so thus began the saga. Mom and I, just mom and I, we don't have any other family, really. So it was just us two working with the FBI. So FBI showing up to our house 
hours and hours of probing and collecting things. And from the get-go, it was just a, it was kind of a, it was just upsetting. They gave us these, uh, these really kind of beaten up recorders to use if anyone called. And it's like these recorders hadn't been used in like 10, you know, just, you could, I could already see from the very beginning, like through, through the veil of them pretending to work in our interests, but not really. But I was so clouded in fear and everything that all I could do was be subservient to what the FBI was saying. And for eight months, we didn't even know if Luke was alive. They were, they would, they would report to us. We had a victim's outreach coordinator who, who was supposed to be our liaison, like the person of comfort kind of updating us. But this woman, it was just, it was a traumatic experience in her own right. You wouldn't even want this woman serving you at McDonald's, you know, let alone being your out, victim's outreach coordinator. Um, but eight months later, we get a video and it's a plea video. And there's Luke looking a little disheveled, but he's all right. So we, so we, we kind of rest assured that, all right, Luke's still, he's, he's good. He doesn't look too healthy or anything, but he's, he's alive. And we asked how they got the video, the FBI, and they said confidential, but we have our sources in the field. Um, and then, so that was eight months after he was abducted. And then, so, and meanwhile, the FBI is telling us, try not to tell any of your friends or loved ones or, or, you know, anyone, because we don't want the captors to do something that they otherwise wouldn't do if, you know, it goes global and all that kind of stuff. So they were kind of giving us these scare tactics the whole time. And mom and I not being the most squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of people, you know, we were, again, we were just kind of like, okay, okay. And just trying to keep things a secret while I was working at a corporate job, you know, taking care of mom, still trying to enjoy my life too, assuming that everything would be okay. You know, words of the FBI saying, just an armed tribe, this stuff kind of happens frequently. Don't worry about it. We'll get Luke home, you know? And, um, and then more, more months passed of just like nothing and just, just being utterly just overwhelmed and terrified. And we finally got a second video of Luke and he looked a lot better this time. And this was in November, uh, just before Thanksgiving of 2014. And he actually looked better. You know, he had his glasses, he looked clean cut. He had a, like a purple shirt on. He just looked, he looked good. And he basically just made an announcement that this was, it's been a year since he's been kidnapped at this point. Wow. And uh, so, but our hope was restored anyway. But then one day I'm uh, at work on the computer and I see failed American raid uh, or they, they, they freed a bunch of hostages, but they missed their main target, which was an American citizen. And I was like, huh? So I called our contact, the FBI. He said, no, don't worry. It's a different thing. Don't worry about it. And then hours later, he calls back and said, hey, sorry, Jordan. I wasn't authorized to tell you. But yeah, we went in for Luke and we missed him by a day. Wow. Like, huh? So this was, you know, so this was like maybe a day or two before Thanksgiving. So then Thanksgiving sits and it's just kind of me and mom sitting there, you know, and we're just... Um, and we had a couple friends over, but it was just, there was just, it was just dark and, and we weren't really sure what to do. And of course, FBI meanwhile says, don't worry. We have no reason to believe that this changes the trajectory of anything. And then within a week, a video goes viral of my brother with his head shaved, um, in that same purple shirt where he looked good, you know, just a month and a half prior. And, uh, he's just at an outdoor location looking really like, you could tell that he was worrying so much about me and mom and the fact that he had to be in that position for us to see him like that was just, just dreadful. And we found out at that point that he was being held by Al Qaeda. And, um, and basically the, the captor said, 
uh, Luke has three days to live and unless our demands are met. He will meet his inevitable fate unless demands are, are met. To this day, mom and I never heard any demands. The government said, sorry, Jordan, we don't have any, they never told us any demands. Sorry, nothing else we can say. And I was, so after more, more probing, more probing, nothing. They wouldn't give us anything. So after that, you know, my playbook with the government just flew out the window and I was just connecting with journalists, with third party organizations. And, mean, and already at this point, media is hounding me. You're getting calls from Q13 from CNN. Hey, Jordan, just want to see if this is real. Blah, blah, you know, and they're getting in the way of me trying to call people to save my brother. And this is media just like harassing me already. And um, you know, I had, I had an appointment to go meet Secretary of Defense John Kerry the next week and all those kinds of things. And, um, and then it, so no sleep, no eating, nothing, just up around the clock, just working with the embassy, working with all these people, just trying to buy time. And then, and then it comes down to like the second night, just we hear loud thuds on the door and we open the door. And it's like these four the dreary looking um, FBI guys, that, people that come in and uh, mom slowly makes her way down the stairs. And I'm, I'm kind of coming to the slow realization, why are they here? And I asked if it was bad and then they just kind of shake their heads. And I asked if it was really bad, they shake their heads. And then mom joins us. And then the woman uh, told us, sorry, uh, Luke was killed in a failed second raid. Neither of these raids were brought to our attention. Um, and, you know, of course mom crumples and I crumple with her and then they're just hovering over us for a while. And then they decide, then they leave. And that was that, that was, um, and then, yeah, so, so, and then literally the next day, Obama gives us a call expressing his condolences. And um, for the next several months, you know, it was just mom and I trying to, trying to do anything, trying to eat, trying to say all those kinds of things. We were just trying to, um, uh, trying to cope, just trying to live. And um, that's kind of in a nutshell, that's how it all went down. And, um, and I, uh, had my first meeting with Obama, um, in, it was, uh, I think it was in March of 2015. I demanded that we talk to him. I didn't even really know what to say, but they said, okay, we'll, we'll make it happen. So, um, it was just me, mom, Obama, and his secretary sitting in a room for like a, a, a maybe a half hour. And I was just rattling off like how much Luke meant to me. I was also rattling off what's their foreign policy? How is it going to change? And Obama just kind of giving me what he typically gives. He, he sounded, he sounded uh, endearing. Like, you know, he cared. He said he'd move heaven and earth if it was where his daughters. But like, okay, wh what does that do for me? What does that do for Luke? You know, because he wasn't one of your daughters. And if he was, right. he would have been okay kind of thing. Um, and then we started kind of connecting with more uh, more hostage families. They invited us to they invited us to DC uh, with more frequency because this was happening a lot. You know, you, you remember the if you recall the ISIS um, beheadings and all of those. We yeah. started meeting all of those families, um, and that in and of itself was very very traumatic because at first glance you think, hey, we have these people we can relate with something horrible, but it also just kind of revealed still some sort of like class system because it seemed mom and I, we kind of felt like we were just in the corner kind of like we didn't have, it seemed like 
like many others did and not not and not really wanting to take away at all what they had to go through because they're, they're all going through it regardless but it felt like we just didn't have the resources the the monetary resources to start any kind of foundations or to um just to put our money where our mouth was, you know, and just and, and do what all these other people are doing. So you start feeling grief, like, oh, we, should we do a foundation for, you know, not, not really knowing what to do. So it was this whole process of just like trying to, um, trying to find any kind of way while in this, in the lion's den of DC, um, not wanting ha to have anything to do with any of it while still feeling a need to be part of it, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, this is uh, my gosh, Jordan, this, uh, you know, again, here I am, you know, you're coming to these events, you're taking photos of us. And I had no idea that you and your mother and really your brother had just experienced this. And it really was so eye opening to me. This is why I just wanted to give you that time to really take us through all that you all experienced, because this is a story that is often never told. We never get to really hear from the families of, of, of victims overseas and in these other countries that are really uh, unfortunately wound up in something that has nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. And it's this country to country, country versus country thing that then your family got wound up in. And, you know, great. They invited you to the White House. You, you said you demanded it. So it wasn't even like they said, look, come, we need to mm -hmm. personally give you condolences. So that's kind of a, a, another check mark here where it's like, come mm -hmm. on, wh where was our bedside manner? A phone call is not going to do it when you lose a loved one, particularly when there are so many details that you don't have. Right. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate you for being willing to share this because honestly, there's I don't know that I've ever really heard like, hey, this is exactly what my family went through mm -hmm. detail by detail, day by day. We were doing this and trying to, again, work with the system that's in place. Like you said, you and your mom weren't like, wait a minute. Are you sure that you you just were like, OK, tell us something. Mm -hmm. Give us some type of information here. But one of the things that I just really appreciate about what you've done is you said, you know what? My brother gave me that camera. I'm now going to find my way of utilizing pictures to tell stories. And you've been doing an amazing job of that, which I know this exhibition really showcases. We showed some of Luke's photos, but you also have some photos. And very similarly, you're, you find yourself in the chop. You hear these national and international stories going on about Seattle. But for many of us that were on the ground, we were experiencing something that was very different than what was being reported. And it was imperative that we had live streams like what converged was doing that we have the photos of what you were actually seeing out there on the ground to really help tell this story tell us a bit about how you really decided on your own like i need to now pick up this torch and carry on this level of work very much what your brother was doing out there yeah for sure um yeah it's 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 imperative to see the silver linings, like no matter how unfathomable a situation is, you know, there's always that kind of uh, beauty to be found in the rubble, right? So it's like trying to extract that. And for me, um, I, I, coming out of this, it's been a whole process. You know, I was, like I said, mentioned earlier, I was working a corporate job, but I just stopped showing up. Mm -hmm. um, they got me to come back, um, but then I, when you're when you're when you're just in complete self-preservation due to trauma 
it becomes very apparent what your needs are, you know, yeah. and what you don't need to be, um, you know, just kind of associating with. And that was a lot for me. It was, a, it was a lot because I associated so much of my past life, um, with somehow with, with Luke getting killed because I was still trying to lead a normal life for like 15 months. So even just watching a movie or going out for a drink, I didn't want to do any of that because I felt like I wasn't doing what I needed to be doing or something, you know, in honor of my brother. Um, so instead, I just, uh, it, it was a kind of a unique situation. I mean, you can go a lot of ways after going through something like this, but I was fortunate enough, I think, to maybe to have some sort of resources uh, in, in people that kind of pulled me up from the trenches. Um, but I did a lot of yoga. I did a lot of meditation. Uh, I'd start going to psychology classes just to understand how PTSD like really works in the brain and like how deep it like permeates into your being. Um, so went down this rabbit hole of just complete kind of re rediscovery and, um, through that whole process, just being on unemployment, working little odd jobs and just, and taking care of mom and then just trying to travel, um, when granted the opportunity opportunity. So I, so I did that, um, for the, for several years, but then, um, yeah, but then this program at Seattle central opened up, which was the visual media program. And it was all things, photo and video. And it just looked like kind of uh, a plunge, uh, into something into a new direction, but I knew it would be good to kind of reinsert myself into society a little bit and kind of maybe reintroduce a bit of structure into my life. And the academic setting, um, is really good at that, you know, uh, just, just by virtue of showing up every single day, you yeah. know, for something. So I started going to Seattle central with, with a kind of a notion that, yeah, photojournalism is where it's at. I don't, I'm not really too sure. I've done event photography, things like that. Um, and just like travel photography. Um, but naturally, you know, I went there, I went to school from 2019 to 2021. Little did I know, little did any of us know that it would be, uh, you know, arguably the most intense time of our lives, the pandemic hit. So all of a sudden everything was remote. And then su subsequently George Floyd's murder um, in wake of all the other murders that are happening every mm -hmm. single day. But that was the boiling point. So all of a sudden I kind of start, you know, I'm still in school, um, but it's remote. So I'm like my, my energy isn't so invested in that as it is everything that's happening out here, you know. And then before I know it, I'm placing more attention out here than I am at school. But with the notion of like this, this is school. This is the biggest educational experience um, for any of us, you know. Um, and I think my teachers got that, and they just kind of let me get free reign a little bit. So that this was the first time I felt like a really, or one of the first times, feeling like really a deep connection to my brother, and how just this is nowhere else I'd rather be. Like all of a sudden, I'm on the front lines every day. That's where I saw Omari. Like maybe like the third day or something of the protest, like early, early June. Um, I think it was the, it was the protest day after, uh, kind of Armageddon in downtown Seattle. Um, so I remember seeing him doing his thing, but not knowing who he was and everything, but we were all kind of, we were all joined in this effort, you know, and, um, to feel Luke through that experience, cause this is what he was doing, right? He was, he was just in it, you know, no questions asked. This is just where you want to be. And, to think of how imperative it is to put yourself in this situation. If you're, if you're able to, you know, um, if you have the means, um, to, to, like you said earlier, like you don't, 
we're, we're, we're presented a package of what, of what's going on, right? Whether it's in Yemen or whether it's in Seattle, we all saw what was being broadcasted with CHOP, with the protests. But when you're in it every single day, you get to lift that veil back a little bit. You get to see things for your own eyes, uh, as opposed to like the package, like a, a packaged veil that's given to you. You get to kind of experience life on the streets for how it truly is. And you get to kind of acknowledge, um, uh, like the, the deep implications of, of social, of, uh, of economic, of racial oppression. So to like to, so to be in that and to feel that and to feel connected in that, um, was, uh, was just what it was all about for me. Like I said, there was no place else I'd rather be. And, um, that was like my, and it continues to be like my feel like my divine connection kind of to the source and being able to connect with people um, through such adversity, but also the beauty that comes out of this adversity. Right. Um, so that's kind of my thing as someone who's like, who understands to a very fine degree, what trauma really entails um, being able to bond with others in their trauma, in their collective trauma, you know, just by virtue of being from a, a certain, you know, racial class or so like socioeconomic class or something, just being marginalized, you know, and that just not having much attention on it because it's just this, it's, it's all kind of glossed over, you know? So I found it particularly like grounding to be with people who, who got it, who really understood. They didn't need to know my story necessarily, but people got it, you know? Um, but I, I, but I think on top of that, not wanting to digress too much, it's like realizing that these traumas, as much as they bring us together, I feel like they're used against us by the system as well. Like they're exploited. You know, I think if, if, if we're not kind of tapping into what it is we need to be doing for ourselves, then there's a chance that this system that, that feeds off of kind of power, that feeds off of adversity, that feeds off of us kind of fighting each other in, in the trenches, basically, then then you got, then it's, then it's, it, it's kind of difficult to see your way out of it. So I think experiencing what I've experienced, just not just with the George Floyd protests and shop, but the protests I was kind of with for the next year and a half, mm -hmm. um, you, you see that there's just, there's so much more work that always needs to be done, you know, and, and what we're up against, you know, whether it's in Yemen or whether it's in Seattle, the fabric of our being, it's like, it's, it's very similar. So it's like, we, we come together, um, in this kind of, join trauma, but we also need to kind of look inward as well. And that process is, you know, um, to, to really kind of truly kind of represent what it is we're fighting for. Absolutely. Yeah. I, this is exactly why, I mean, I, I just wanted to show your photos again, because I think what you, when you were describing it and really uh, the fact that you've put this exhibition together, that's a blend of you know, these two stories that share so many similar characteristics. And yet, if we did not have these examples, maybe we wouldn't really be able to draw the connections. So I appreciate that you've now taken your brother's experience and your experience and really combined it. Um, of, of course, we went over time, but it was so necessary to have this discussion, Jordan, today. And I really appreciate you for, you know, really just being your authentic self, coming here and sharing with us because this is beyond inspiring what you've been able to do and how you're really taking on and picking up the torch. But you too have a great 
camera eye, a mm. great photographic eye, right? And so I know your brother would be so proud of where you are today. And, you know, you being a part of this Converge family, I get to experience your photo greatness all the time that you're out there and just appreciate what you bring to these events and what you brought really to this exhibit so we could really understand the juxtaposition between what was going on there in Yemen while your brother was there and how it connects so much to the Seattle story that you were definitely a part of. Mm -hmm. So before I let you go, you got to look right there in the camera, let folks know mm -hmm. how they can come and check out this amazing exhibition that you put together. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, Trey, for your words. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the exhibition, um, and I'll just say just kind of on top of that, I mean, there's so many layers and in, in seeing this exhibition, you don't, you not only get to see kind of two worlds, but you also get to know my brother in this exhibition as well, because there's, there's a section for him and, uh, it's it's getting to know my brother is a beautiful thing for me, of course, but it's also so emblematic of of what Luke represents in in living your truth and living an authentic life and being curious and giving people the benefit of the doubt, you know. So um, and 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 trying to live a life devoid of labels when it comes to politicizing things, you know. So when you go to this exhibition, I think you kind of you're you're going to feel a lot of that. Um, and the exhibition is Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. It's at uh, the M. Rosetta Hunter Gallery in uh, Seattle Central College. So it goes through August 18th. Um, so you have a few more weeks to go. Again, that's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I'll be there you know, off and on. So I would love to see you guys there in person. It makes it all the more meaningful for me. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you there who can attend. Wow. What time yeah. is it open? So Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And on Thursdays, 10 a.m. to 6. So there's some more wiggle room on Thursday. All right. All right. Yeah. Right on. Jordan Summers, uh, I can't thank you enough. And it's been so phenomenal to get to know you deeper and understand your story even more. I just really appreciate you for being here and sharing it with us. I think you and I could have talked for at least two hours oh, <laughs> beyond, <laughs> right? But I really appreciate you giving us a kind of compact uh, story here today to share with the audience because, wow, what you and your mother experienced, I can't even imagine. And so my heart goes out to you and your mom. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks so much, Trey. Absolutely. You guys, when I tell you, you know, that this is really about inspiring you, we went way over today, but it was necessary because I understand the value and the impact that Jordan's story has on all of us. It doesn't matter whether you see yourself as a part of the solution or not. All of us are here in these human vessels, right? We are living in this world. And there's so many things in the world that impact all of us. And for those of us who are involved in the Seattle protest movement here, we probably understand it even more. But for those who weren't, it's so important for me that you really get a true glimpse of what it's like from behind the lines, right? Someone like Jordan, Omari, so many others who were out there in the streets, myself included, there's something so different about us being able to share our personal accounts with you versus what the media was picking up. So I found that this was very important for us to take that time to really allow this story to evolve so we can all understand 
And there are so many connections between these collective struggles of socioeconomic conditions, oppressive systems, racist practices all over the globe. There is oppression happening everywhere. And it's on us to really decide who we want to be in this lifetime that allows us to begin to eliminate what that oppression looks like, to literally eradicate it off the face of the planet. It, it really means that we need to be sharing these stories more, telling these stories, really understanding these stories for ourselves. So of course, I want y'all to be inspired. Jordan is doing his job. He is seeing himself as a part of the solution. He realized that there was a need for him to be a part of the photojournalistic world right here in Seattle. He realized he had an opportunity to be a part of something that was really cementing our history through photos, which is so key as we talk about visuals being a main factor that we can always go back to to really cement the zeitgeist of the time, where we are in any particular time. So I am definitely inspired. I want y'all to be inspired. It's always amazing for you to see yourself as a part of the solution. Uh, tomorrow, I get to, of course, check in with my guy, Brian Callanan from Seattle News, Views and Brews. And we also have a special guest from the musical Come From Away that is happening right now on Fifth Avenue Theater. I get to sit down with James Earl Jones II. So excited that he will be joining us as well tomorrow. And of course, for me, until tomorrow at 11 a.m., y'all. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.